hello, hello, and welcome to my podcast, That Show Fucked Me Up. It is I, the beautiful, the talented, the funny, your host, Mariel Vizcarra. Cue in the applause. What is up, fucked up fam? It's your girl. You're ready to the drill, but if you don't, here it goes. That show, Fuck Me Up, is a podcast where I talk about TV shows that fuck me up. Really uh, self-explanatory, straight to the point. Uh, welcome to season 12, Fucked Up Fam. Wow, what an honor. And you know what's a bigger honor? The TV show that I'm covering, The Fall of the House of Usher. So, wait, am I pronouncing it good? Yeah. Or am I saying it correctly? It's such a long name, The Fall of the house of usher i feel like it could have been just like the fall of house usher but like i don't know why they complicated <laughs> that like I, I mike flanagan uh masterpiece uh but a word a word about the title thank you thank you oh but it it might be the the edgar Allan poe name oh it might be it might be it might be but yes uh Season 12, so excited to be here, so excited to have you here. Bro, this show, this show, the impact, the, um, what other, I'm looking for other words for impact. <laughs> it shook my world. It fucking shook my world. And y'all know how I feel about Mike Flanagan. I'm a stan. I would die for that white man. He tells me jump. I ask him how how high. He tells me get on the floor and pretend to be a worm. And I'm just and I do that. And I wriggle around on the floor. You get it? You get it? I just think he his mind. I don't find him sexually attractive. You know attractive. You know how sometimes they say, Oh, when someone like stimulates your mind, you're gonna be sexually attracted to them. No. That's not happening here. I do not find that white man attractive. I do not know that white man. I just know of him. And he's already got his muse, Miss Kate Siegel, the beautiful, the talented, the iconic Kate motherfucking Siegel put some respect on her name. So, yeah, I don't know why I had to share that I'm not sexually attracted to him. I have no idea what's happening, but it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, yes, it's a long episode because one thing about Mike Flanagan, he likes his long episodes. Am I right, Fucked Up Fam? Those who have been here since the beginning know we've covered The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, Midnight Mass. We all know this fool likes long ass fucking episodes and it's fine. Does it take me three fucking days to write notes for one episode? Yes, because I get tired. And because it takes me like three hours to watch one episode. I, and I think I'm a really fast typer, to be totally fucking honest. But it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Okay, before we get started, let's go to our updates corner. I'm back in San Diego, bitches. If you're around, hit me up. Let's go out. Let's do hood rat shit. Let's uh break the law. Just kidding. If... um. A member of law enforcement is listening. I do not intend to break the law. I would never, never, I would never fucking break the law, mate. 
wow that was good that was fucking good dude just kidding no that was not good that was not good at all. <laughs> but yes san diego homies hi hi it's me it's your girl i want to see y'all more also i wrote i wrote holy shit dude am i twisted enough to share this here so i saw like an instagram ad and it's like write a poem for like a new year resolution or like 2024 and i wrote a little something should i Am I going to give you the Mariel exclusive and read you one of my fucking poems, bro? Okay. Okay, let's do this. Let's do this. Uh, no title, but here it goes. A new year, a new promise, beginnings and endings, births and deaths, beauty, pain. This year I want to, I want to live more than I did in 2023. Take extra breaths. I want my heart to pump twice as much bl blood as last year. This year, I want to let go of perfection. I want to be ugly, embrace the dirty, the weird and eccentric, eat cake like a maniac in a room full of strangers, thrusting up to my ears, vanilla in my hair. I want pearls and champagne, wood and whiskey, magia and mezcal. In 2024, I want to forgive, truly forgive. Let go of the past, embrace the anger, but not the resentment. I want to cry more than I ever have before and laugh till I cry and laugh again. A humbling cycle, dry cheeks and silence are out, mania is in. I want to be held by lovers and friends five times more than before, skin to skin contact. I never want to be untouched. This year, I truly want to be adored, admired, worshipped. I want people to fear me just like God. I want a million or orgasms. I want to gift them out as well in beautiful little boxes wrapped in, not wrapped, naked, naked orgasms, the most beautiful presents. I want to live life like it was my last year on earth, 365 Days left, 364, 363, ticking clock, no better yet. I want to live life as if I was immortal. No care in the world, but fun and love and friends and family and passion. And all I can hope for is the same enthusiasm next time the world the world orbits the sun. Wow, what did y'all think? You like that? It's so interesting. Well, I just thought of it, but like y'all get to see like my goofy side which is me as a podcast host. Like, I'm, I feel like I could be really stupid, but you also get to see, like, me. Like, the real fucking genuine me. And I just think that's... I just think that's fucking amazing. The way that my listeners know me more than most of the people in my life is fucking insane. Because, first of all, I would never share this anywhere else. I want to, but I feel like sometimes it's too deep. It's too much. And, you know, you know, sometimes people don't deserve to see that side of me. But y'all, my listeners, you fucking do because I fucking adore you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so news, news, news. Um, dating apps are out. You know what's in? pole dancing classes 
I just booked my first pole dancing class. Well, I mean, I didn't really book it because they were offering like first class free and I've been wanting to take one for the longest and I've been seeing that ad for forever and they finally got me and I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go tomorrow and see how it is, but I'm kind of excited and nervous because I feel like you have to be very um, vulnerable with pole dancing and it's a very like sensual dance or it can be. And I feel like I'm a very sensual person, but at the same time, like, physically with my moves, like, I'm not a good dancer. That's what I'm trying to portray. I'm not a good fucking dancer. Can I throw it back? Absolutely. But am I a good dancer? No. <laughs> but yeah, I'm excited. I'll keep you posted on that. Okay, the next update, just to give you some context, my cousin is born on the first of the year. So literally, Jen was born was born not is born because he isn't he isn't born every single year he's like my age but like he's born on january 1st so you know his birthday is sometimes overshadowed by the holidays it happens december babies know that january babies know that and that's it that those are the only fucking people that know that in my humble opinion of course um and every year for the past eight years, he has thrown himself like a major fucking party at his house. And I had, I've been invited to the past three, but I didn't go to the one last year. I went to the one two years ago, and I just went to the one this past Saturday. Bro. Okay, tell me why. It was a Facebook invite, right? And he called it Peda Nuclear 8, because it's the eighth year. War of Peda, kind of like War of God. But War of Peda. So for those non-Spanish speakers, Peda means like, oh, I'm going to go to a Peda. I'm going to go to like a hangout where we're going to drink alcohol and get drunk. That's a Peda. Spanish is such a beautiful fucking language. <laughs> dude, it was so much fucking fun. Like fun. The DJ, dude. So his friend DJs. And um, I'm like, oh, how do you pay him? And he just gets him like five tall cans and he's like or six tall cans and that's his payment and he just djs and has a good time and drinks um it was fun like my cousins were there um my, some of my sister's friends went like it was so much fucking fun dude i think this is like it was on the 6th of january so i think i'm starting off the year well we've we've rebranded january 6th to uh Peda Nuclear Day instead of January 6th day. You know, if if you know what happened, you know what happened. But we're rebranding that day, okay? Or at least I'm trying. I'm trying. Uh, but it was so much fun, and I think it just, it, it it's going to be a good year. It's going to be a good year because I have to be positive about it. And because you listen to my poem, I want so many fucking things. I want a million orgasms. Do you know how hard it's going to be? Do you know how fucking hard I'm going to have to work? <laughs> Why am I like this? Why the fuck am I like this? Also, pop culture. Gypsy Rose Blanchard is out of prison. Okay. So I brought this up to my mom and my grandma. And then they were all like, "Um, that's kind of fucked up that people are like glamorizing her. And like, she literally killed her mom. And like, for Mexican parents, like, killing your parents, like, is it patricide or is that a father? 
Because then matricide is when you kill your mom. Well, killing a parent is, like, literally the worst sin possible. Like, I totally get that. Well, I feel like just killing anyone, uh, not great, not great. However, what I couldn't get across to them is just, like, the fucking, like, fear that Gypsy Rose Blanchard was probably living in all of her fucking life, all of her fucking existence, till her mom died. Yes, was it under her plan? Absolutely. Did she serve her time? Yes, she served her time. And I feel like she's getting a second chance and she should, fuck it, she should thrive, dude. Like, she's become a social media influencer literally the second she left prison. And I'm here for that. I, and I couldn't like portray that to my mom, especially covering sharp objects. We see, we see what Munchausen by proxy does, right? Like, I feel like Gypsy being alive is literally like a slim chance for most people or for most children under like that have like a Munchausen mommy or a Munchausen parent. Because like, sometimes they die (laughs) like sometimes they fucking die and i feel like it was just like it's either me or her kind of like mentality especially with like an underdeveloped brain because you know brains don't stop like brains grow till you're like 25 i think i think don't quote me on that don't fucking quote me on that please please i'm begging you don't quote me on that (laughs) but it's just like I feel like that was her whole view of life. Like, if I don't get rid of my mom, there's a possibility that I die. And at that point, you know what? And I don't know if I don't know if it's relevant, but I'm just like, it's so what? What a dark fucking thought just that entered my mind. It's just like, do children? that have never been shown love know what love feels like? I feel like that's a stupid question, and I'm like, obviously they don't, Mariel, because they've never known it. Or, like, can they imagine what it feels like? I don't... Bro. Bro. (laughs) I can't. I can't with me, but I just wanted to talk about that. Miss Gypsy Rose is free. Um... She served her time. She's slaying it up. She's doing the TikTok. She's doing interviews. She's getting that D from her husband. Respect. Miss. Miss. Respect. She's already ahead of the game in the million orgasms ordeal. You know? Also, why did I sound like a like a cartoon character just then? Just then and there. I felt like I sounded. I sounded? Is that a word? I sound. No, I think it is sounded. <laughs> like goofy. <laughs> I feel like my words all like came together. Okay, whatever. Recommendations corner. I watched Saltburn. Salt, salt, salt burn. That's a hard ass name. I had never thought of that. Okay, so I watched Saltburn. You fucking prudes, dude. You fucking prudes. Because I was expecting like hardcore porn at this point. Okay, he gurgled a little cum water. He gurgled some dirty cum water. I mean, if my man... 
<laughs> if my man is not hopping on the bathtub after I've rubbed one out and just showered or bathed or whatever, and he's not in there with a fucking, was it, with a fucking, what's the name? Straw. I was going to say popote. <laughs> That's the word for straw in Spanish. <laughs> if my man, I'm going to repeat myself, isn't in there in the bathtub with a fucking straw slurping that shit up, do I even want him? Like, just think about it for a quick fucking second, okay? No, obviously not. I'm, I don't want him. <laughs> Why did I think he was going to try to fuck the whole family? Well, I mean, figuratively, he did. He fucked over the whole family. But, like, literally, he only fucked, like, two of them. Well... Three, if you kind of consider the the grave scene, the grave scene was a little untasteful. Like if you ask me, like I get it, like I get it. He's just like, I'm gonna fuck you back to life. No, that's not that's not what that scene meant. I know that's not what that scene meant. <laughs> um, and at, and at the end, he's alone in that huge house. I mean, he looks like he's having the time of his fucking life. Like, there's, I know it. You know it. We all know it. There's nothing better than dancing around naked in your house to that, to that one song that gets you going. Nothing better than that. World peace doesn't stand a chance against dancing naked to your favorite song. Just kidding. That's obviously joke that's obviously a joke mate um <laughs> i need to stop skins is over mariel it's the fall of the house usher i need to talk like um like a um like a proper american uh person with a shit ton of money do you get it i'm still talking in an accent that's i don't know what type of fucking accent i was using but i have no clue um but yeah like Barry, Oliver, sweetie, are are you just like, like, is he a psychopath? I would, you know, I don't like to throw like psych terms around like that. No, I don't. I really don't give a fuck. But is he a psychopath? I feel like he's a psychopath. Because the whole story, like the fact, like the whole bicycle scene where, you know, well, if you haven't seen Okay, if you haven't seen it, go see it right now. And then report back here, okay? Thank you. But it gave me, like, Ted Bundy vibes, the bicycle scene. If you know, you know. Because when you know, you know. I love Lana Del Rey. <laughs> Lana Del Rey would run Southburn, like, if you gave her a chance. Because she's an American horror. Literally. And we love her for that. Um, okay, I'm sorry. My my mind is going a million hours miles. No, a million miles an hour. And I'm trying to keep up. I'm trying to keep up. It's hard. It's hard in here. Being a podcaster by yourself, hard work. But I I would do it all over again for all of you listeners. Because I literally adore you. 
Um, what else? What else? What else? So yeah, Selburn, Vanilla, a house by himself, a fortune by himself, I guess. Well, not even a fortune, just the house, right? Like, is that all he wanted? The fantasy? Because he said he loved that other fool. Jacob Elordier's ass. Also, can we talk about the the gay scene? The gay kind of sex scene? Okay, first of all, Farley is fucking delicious. Yum. Yum? Am I right? Y'all are all like, Jacob Elordier this, Jacob Elordier that. Farley? You beautiful fucking giant. You beautiful fucking man. Please, please, just a crumb. Just a crumb of that coxer. <laughs> I, like, mention my podcast sometimes at, like, family stuff, and they're like, drop the link, and then I never do. Why do you think I never do? Why do you think I never do, fucked up fam? Because of, like, like, why does my mind do this? I don't get it. Is this mental illness uh, in it? Ain't it? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> And then I, I I read a book the day I disappeared. I think that's what it's called. I don't remember. And I can't remember why well, I could literally just go and look in my Kindle. But no, not in my Kindle, my Amazon. No, on my what the fuck? On my on my tablet. On my tablet. On my fire tablet. But I'm not going to because I'm a rebel like that. But the day I disappeared. It was really good actually. It was a good watch. It's basically about this girl that goes missing for like three months when she's little like when she's five or six and then like when she um is old and she has some trauma from it but like she doesn't remember it but obviously she's affected by it and affected her whole family and her mom is an alcoholic um and then like another girl goes missing and then they're like did we put the right person behind bars so good 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 book um but i think that's it y'all that's fucking it Oh no, uh music recommendation. It's called hold on, let me pull it up. It's called Que Onda by Calle 24 Chino Pacas and Fuerza Regida. Really good. Really, really good. Okay. Go listen to it right now. Even if you don't speak Spanish, go listen to it right now. Thank you. All right, that's all for our update. And that only took 22 fucking minutes. Let's get started with today's episode. All right, episode one of The Fall of the House of Usher is called A Midnight Dreary. Um, so I've decided to start off each episode with like an excerpt or the poem that is referenced by the title. So A Midnight Dreary or Dreary? Dreary? A Midnight Dreary. I English is my second language. I don't know how that word is pronounced. But uh, it's actually that line is an excerpt from the poem the raven so here it goes once upon a midnight dreary while i pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore while i nodded nearly napping suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping rapping at my chamber door tis some visitor i muttered tapping at my chamber door only this and nothing more oh I love poetry so iconic so iconic that I shared my poem at the beginning and now I get to uh you know 
recite a little poem by him truly, Edgar Allan Poe, the goat. <laughs> All right. So the episode opens up with a happy new year party countdown and a quick shot of a creepy woman smiling. Uh, the creepy woman is, of course, played by the legendary Carla Gugino, a.k.a. Uh, what's her face? I used to call her Claire on The Haunting of Hill House, but that was not her name. The mom in The Haunting of Hill House is a narrator in The Haunting of Bly Manor, and she does not come out in Midnight Mass. <laughs> But she's an icon. Also, she's, um, what's, ah, fuck, what's the name? What's the name of that one creepy-ass movie that haunts me at night? It's also, uh, Mike Flanagan. Oh, with the creepy dude standing in the, in the corner of the room. Okay, I'll remember, I'll remember. She also comes out there. She's a beauty. She's iconic. We stand. And then we see a man in a church during a funeral, and it's only him, his granddaughter, his sister, his wife, and his lawyer there. So it's like a huge, beautiful church, and there's only five people there, and it's a funeral. Well, it's actually a triple funeral for three of, of his kids. So the man's name is Roderick, and he's disassociating as we see quick shots of characters as if he's getting flashes of those individuals. He turns around to the back of the church and he sees a woman in the black in the back wearing a raven mask and his granddaughter turns around too to see what he's looking at but she does not see anything and when she asks him what is wrong he only says she's here so we see all of them leaving the church and there's paparazzi outside waiting for them and they begin to snap pictures of them and with each snap we're introduced to the characters the alive ones who were at the church funeral service are introduced as pictures of themselves with their names in an evidence board. So Roderick Usher, CEO of Fortunato Pharmaceuticals, and the grandfather who saw the lady with the raven mask, his sister, Madeline Usher, who has an iconic haircut. Uh, she's She has like, uh, what are they called? Not the baby bangs, the tiny bangs, the micro bangs. Um, and like a little poof, a little snooky poof, iconic. And Arthur Pym, their lawyer, their lawyer also called or also known as the Pym Reaper. And then the deceased are introduced as newspaper clippings of who they were announcing their deaths and also as the picture in the evidence uh, board. So Frederick Usher, deceased November 18th. And then the 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 article title is the tragic death of frederick usher and then the second uh child is tamerlane tammy usher deceased november 17th so a day before her brother died she died and then the title is usher found dead in bizarre tragedy next we have victor victor is it victorine Yes, I think it's Victorine Lafourcade, La deceased November 15. So two days before deaths. And then it's like murder-suicide rocks Usher family. Then we have Napoleon Usher, deceased November 13th. Another two-day break, no deaths. And then it's like Napoleon Usher, dead. That's the article title. Uh, fifth child, Camille Lespain. I don't know. There's, okay, disclaimer, there's weird-ass names here, as you could already see. 
uh, deceased November 11, 11, 11, make a wish. And then it's like Harris killed in gruesome incident. And then the last uh, dead offspring, the sixth and final dead offspring is Prospero Perry Usher. So nickname Perry. Uh, deceased November 9th. Another two-day break. Lovely, iconic. And then the article title is Prospero Usher Dies in Freak Accident. So we are then introduced to the U.S. Attorney General, um, August Dupont, and he's in his office looking at the evidence board with everyone's picture. And his and like his colleague walks into his office and lets him know how he's not going to believe it, but that he's on the phone and how he wants to meet with him tonight. Dupont asks who, and the colleague is like him. He sent an address. He wants to meet with you tonight and tells him that it was him who called, not his assistant and not the Pim Reaper, the lawyer, but him. So we then see Dupont get dropped off by a taxi in front of this rundown house and he knocks and lets himself, lets himself inside. And I need to mention that the weather is not looking great. It's not a beautiful night. It's windy. It looks like it's about to rain or it's already started raining. It's stormy. Not great. So Dupont walks in and then he hears Roderick Usher from the other room, which is lit up by some candles and a fireplace. And he tells him to come in if he's coming in, if he's if he's going to go inside. Dupont goes over and Roderick asks if he wants some cognac and he says that he does not. And he apologizes for his loss. And then he corrects himself for your losses. Roderick ignores that and he takes he takes out a bottle and he says how that's the most expensive bottle of cognac in the world and how it it was 4 million euros in auction. Have I mentioned that rich people are fucking insane? Dropping 4 million euros for something you're going to drink and then you're going to piss out is fucking ridiculous to me. Like, I can't, I can't understand, understand how the brains of rich people work. So uh, Roderick explains that it was produced in 1776 and how it it laid in a barrel for 100 years. And he tells Dupont that a single pour costs more than double his annual salary. He urges Dupont or Augie, because his first name is Augustine, but Roderick calls him Augie, uh, to have a pour. And Dupont continues and says how he is really sorry. And Rod- Roderick says that it's fine and that how he knows that he is sorry that all his children are dead. Dupont asks where Arthur Pym is, because uh, it will be better if they talk with an attorney present. And Roderick asks, he's like, how many subpoenas have you sent me over the years? And he's like, you finally got me. And uh, he's like, let's not get hung up on protocol. Dupont tells him to waive his rights and Roderick obliges and he states that he waives his right to an attorney. So Dupont congratulates him for getting away with it again. And Roderick lets him know that nobody gets away with anything. Not really. Dupont uh, says how Madeline, Roderick's sister, will beg to differ. Roderick lets him know that he can ask her himself since Madeline is down at the basement. And he mentions how she's probably a tougher get than him since she has never been on the record. Roderick checks his phone and he apologizes and says how it's his granddaughter, Lenore. And Dupont urges him to answer, but Roderick tells him not to lecture him about family values since he's just as much as a shit in that department as he is. 
Roderick says how he called him tonight to give him the only thing he's ever wanted, his confession. So DuPont turns on his recorder and he states his name for the record and also Roderick's. And he says how he has waived his right to have an attorney present. And Roderick jokes and uh, says, Mr. DuPont waived his right to a glass of Henry IV cognac. And he's like, who's crazier? He asked, like, who's crazier, me or him? Me for confessing or me or him for not wanting to drink this four million dollars, no, four million euro uh, cognac. So Dupont obliges, grabs his glass, and he says that he's just warming it up. Roderick says that it, it is truly him, like to the, to the recorder, and how they're in his childhood home and how he bought it and kept it this whole time how he actually bought the whole neighborhood and how he wanted to watch it grow old and rot just in case he ever needed a pick me up. Okay, why did that just remind me of Hill House about like how the dad bought the house and he's like, I just, I'm gonna buy it and no one else is gonna get hurt by it and I'm just gonna watch it rot to the ground. Oh, I love this. I love parallels. So Dupont asks what exactly he's confessing to, and Roderick says that he's going to confess to all of it, the whole thing. And he continues, you brought what, um, 73 charges? All of them, everything, all yours, right now, and I'll throw in a bonus. I'll tell you how my children died. Dupont says how he knows how they died and how everyone knows, and Roderick tells him how he does not know a thing. And Roderick thinks of where he should start, and he settles with starting at the beginning. And he says he says how it actually started in that house, the house that they're in right now, in that very same room, and how no one can begin to understand everything he has done unless they understand that that life that the the life that him and his sister Madeline were born into. Then we see Roderick and Madeline as small children, and the year is 1953. Uh, Roderick, as the narrator, mentions that his mom, Eliza, was the woman that shaped every choice they ever made and how she was the personal secretary to the CEO of Fortunato Pharmaceuticals, William Longfellow. And we see him. At, so we see William Longfellow as he walks past Eliza's desk to go to into his office. And he mentions how he once told his wife how children are never too young to be whipped. And he compared whipping children to beating a beef steak to make it tender. And how their mother forbid them from ever going to Longfellow's house. And since his sister was a daredevil, she wanted to break that rule. So we see young Madeline and Roderick peeking through the gate at Longfellow's house. And then Roderick attempting to jump over the gate. But his foot gets stuck and he's dangling over the side before he falls into the long the Longfellow property. So I also want to mention that Longfellow and Usher, his mom and his like Roderick, his mom and his sister, like they were practically neighbors. They lived in the, the same street. So Longfellow sees this just as Eliza notices what is happening and he comes outside and says how her children were spying and he grabs Eliza as someone who's your boss should not grab you and he whispers in her ear, not now. And not ever. And Madeline notices this and tells Mr. Longfellow to let go of her mother's arm. 
Longfellow's wife also comes outside and she asks what is happening and his demeanor completely changes. And he explains that they have a couple of looky-loos and she notices Eliza and Eliza apologizes and says how it won't happen again. And the wife notices that young Roderick is hurt and she asks if he's all right. And Eliza says how he is fine. And Longfellow tells her that it's all fine and how they will talk about it on Monday. Uh, and and then present day Roderick narrates how Madeline hated Longfellow, even as a little girl, and and how she somehow knew the truth. Then we see Eliza healing her son's um, ankle, and she lets them know that they need to stay away from that house, and how Mr. Longfellow is just like God because he loves them from far away. Ah. So Madeline says that he is mean, and Eliza says that he's complicated, just like God. So she asks Roderick how he feels, and he says that it hurts like his ankle hurts. And she tells him to remind the words to to remember the words of Mother Teresa, because pain and suffering are like the kiss of Jesus, and that it just means that you've come so close to him that he can kiss you. And she kisses his forehead. The delusion, the fucking delusion, comparing a man to God, and then saying that pain and suffering is Jesus kissing you. Um mental health issues am i right <laughs> so narrator roderick says if pain and suffering is like the kiss of jesus then he kissed the living shit out of my mother in the years that followed it cuts to madeline and roderick as teenagers and the year is 1962 so around like 10 years later and they hear a bell ringing and it's their mother from her bed and she looks like she's in pain and they try to get her to drink something and she denies it and she like swats the drink away and madeline says how they should call a doctor like in the tv but again she says no to that too roderick tries to argue with her but she explains that jesus showed them how to heal the sick and it wasn't through medicine and she yells at them where is your faith and she tells them that their body is the temple of god and if they would pollute it so we see them uh madeline and roderick teenagers walking over to Longfellow's house and Madeline is telling Roderick not to say what he wants and to say what he wants to hear so that way it is his idea so they're planning what to tell Longfellow so Roderick seems scared because their mom says how they are never said that how they're never, never supposed to bother him and Madeline tells him that it's the least he can do and Madeline wants to go over the plan again and then Roderick says sorry to bother you Mr. Longfellow we know our mom uh, worked for you loyally for 20 years and we just thought you should know and then it cuts to them explaining this very same thing to mr longfellow and how their mother always said that he was a man that could move mountains talk anyone into anything and how he was the smartest man she ever met and they thought he could talk to her into it he's confused and he asked if they came to him so uh he can talk their mother into seeing a doctor and Madeline explains that she won't take any medicine, nothing, won't see any doctors and how she's in so much pain. They explain again how she does not listen to them, but maybe she will listen to him. And then Roderick says, she loves you. And Longfellow asks, what did you say? And Madeline re reiterates that it's the least he can do for her. Longfellow says how he does not know what they're talking about and how Eliza was a decent worker for a long time and how she lost it and how they should take their insinuations and get off his property and and they walk off. It's the next morning and Madeline checks Eliza's pulse and she shakes her head and Roderick asks what they should do and Madeline tells him that if they call the police, 
they'll be doctors and how they will embalm her. Roderick says how they can't do that and Madeline agrees. So again, Roderick asks what they can do. And then it cuts to them building a wooden a wooden casket and they are taking wood from like a small like outhouse or storage room or like it's like a small storage room outside in uh, of the of their own property. So they're destroying that to get wood to make their mother a casket. So we see them bring their mom downstairs and bury her in this makeshift casket uh, that they made. It's the middle of the night now and Roderick is woken up by some thunder and lightning and he goes out to look out the window and something startles him. And he wakes up Madeline and he points to the casket that is no longer underground and it is destroyed. They go outside in the pouring rain and they confirm that their mom's body is not there anymore and they see muddy footprints making their way back into the house and they follow after the, after them. Muddy footprints, everyone! Muddy fucking footprints walking back inside the house. The haunting of Bly Manor parallels. Ah! I love it. So once inside the house, they're looking around in the darkness and they call out for their mommy. They're shivering and wet and scared, and Madeline thinks that she might be passed out somewhere. And Roderick asks what they should do, and Madeline says how they're going to call a doctor and how they have to. And lightning strikes, and Madeline sees something behind Roderick, and she points behind him as she whimpers. And then Eliza's behind him, and she she like grabs Roderick by the neck and begins to choke him as they both apologize. Eliza like comes to a realization of who they are and then she lets go of Roderick's neck and she walks out the front door and is walking towards Longfellow's house as the kids follow close behind her. Longfellow is outside because the electricity went out and Eliza walks right into the property and Longfellow recognizes her and Eliza goes up to him and begins to choke him as the kids watch and Longfellow falls to the ground and uh, after like Almost immediately, he dies, and then so does Eliza die on top of him. And then Longfellow's wife comes out and yells out in horror. So back in present day, Roderick explains that the official story is that Longfellow had a heart attack in his sleep and how it was before the internet, so it was easy to fabricate a lie, and how they cleaned up the little spatters of truth once he took over to protect the Usher family. And Roderick says how the last thing his mother did in her life was kill a powerful man and how they carried that secret with them and loved her all and all. Also, queen shit. Okay, the last thing you do is kill a powerful man. Amazing, iconic. We stand. Do we stand murder? No. Do we stand the murder of the man that never claimed his children and was a piece of shit? Yes, just kidding. Uh, don't quote me on that. This is for just for legal purposes. That was a joke. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so DuPont is confused and he asks why they're talking about his mother. And Roderick says that he supposes he needed to because she's there. And he tells DuPont, she's right behind you. So DuPont takes a beat, but he doesn't turn around and he starts going off about high level negotiation tactics and how powerful men employ certain level of strategies to throw their opponent off their game. And he lets Roderick know that he's not going to turn around. Roderick says how that is fine with him and DuPont asks again why he's telling him this. And Roderick says how they're talking about his kids and how it's important to know 
to how they died and why he treated them the way that he did. And he also explains and why they were the way that they were and how it was probably because of his dad. And he explains how he he was never like him because he never closed the gate on his children. He states how he had six kids by five different mothers, but they were all his and he treated them so because if you were an usher, the gates were open and it was a matter of principle. So Roderick looks down at his phone again and Dupont asks if it's his granddaughter and Roderick says how it is and Dupont thinks it's funny because he just said the gates are always open, but he does not answer his phone. Roderick shrugs and he says that he doesn't and Dupont says how the day will come when she will stop texting him and Roderick throws it right back at him how his grandkids are with his children right now and how he is there with him so they should skip the soapbox. Dupont asks if Roderick is watching his house and Roderick says that if he is not mistaken he never saw Dupont's husband in the courtroom. Okay Kingsley and Roderick says a culmination of your life's work and he wasn't there rooting you on and he asks why is that if he's such an expert in family values and he mentions that all of his family were in the court uh during their trial and dupont says how some of them he's like oh well actually they were there because some of them were indicted co-conspirators so they had to be there legally He goes on and uh, Dupont goes on and says how his family didn't have to be there and how he actually did not want them anywhere near the Usher family. And Roderick says how he was always an impressive or or orator or what the fuck orator orator. It's it's spelled O-A-R-A-T-O-R orator, whatever. And how he was even impressed with his opening arguments and how he watched that tape back a few times and how that was the last time all his family was in the same place alive. So we get a flashback to the day in court during opening arguments and Dupont introduces himself to the jury and he says how it's a privilege to represent the U.S. against Fortunato Pharmaceuticals and the Usher crime family. Love that. Like the Sopranos, but the Usher crime family, iconic. So we see that everyone is there in court and Dupont continues and says how he will explain why these charges were brought forward and how this case will represent the most meaningful pharmaceutical prosecution in the history of their country and how he knows that there are already a lot of headlines about the company and their painkillers and the deaths that um, have been claimed. He talks about how Roderick and Madeline together spent four decades building Fortunato to the company that they are today and how they have done uh, how they have done awful, awful things. And he mentions violating regulations, statutes and fundamental ethics and at the cost of people's lives. He says that he will claim that Fortunato has misleading marketing practices and how they claim their products are safe and effective and how they destroy any evidence claiming the contrary. He also explains that the reason they aren't sweating is because they believe that people like them don't go to prison. And Dupont says that they're right because in the last 40 years, there's not one indictment, not one charge, not even a speeding ticket, and most importantly, not one consequence has stuck to Roderick Usher, Madeline Usher, or anyone else in their family. 
Dupont says how the House of Usher has weathered every storm and that they're standing today even stronger, stronger than ever before, but they're going to hear something else, something they don't expect, and that is why they're going to have a different outcome during that trial, because they're going to hear from one of them, someone from within, an informant from the inner circle, someone so close to the family's crimes that their testimony will be evidence that is unimpeachable. This, of course, catches all of the family's attention, and you can see that they're a little startled by this news. Arthur Pym, uh, the lawyer, calls an objection, and the judge asks both lawyers to approach the bench. Arthur says how this is the first he's hearing about a witness that the prosecution has, and Dupont says how this witness came forward at great personal risk and in fear of their life, and how he believes that this courtroom is compromised, and the judge does not like that, and Arthur calls it absurd. Dupont states that they will keep the witness confidential, and the judge says how he should have kept that from his opening argument, and Dupont agrees and says how he got ahead of himself and how he's not the young lawyer he used to be, but that he is happily able to strike that from the record. So they go back to their corners and the judge tells the jury that they will disregard anything that was said about an informant at the time being. So after the hearing, Dupont is being interviewed by the press and he reminds everyone how 55,000 people have died because of greed. And then Roderick and Madeline come out of the courtroom together and Roderick just tells Arthur, family dinner. Arthur asks all of them and Roderick replies, spouses too. And then he and Madeline walk away. And then Arthur continues to glare at Dupont as he makes his statement to the press and goes on about how he's like, this is not a joyful day for me. And how his only wish is that the people like the ushers will take responsibility for the damage they've caused in other people's lives. We then see the oldest usher's son, Frederick, and his luxury home, condo, apartment, I don't know, bowling in his own built-in lane, saying how his dad calling a family dinner is bad news, and he's explaining this to his wife, Morale, and his daughter, Lenore. He's saying how this must be about the mole, and Lenore corrects him, so she's like a teenager, like maybe 13, 14, and says how it's actually about an informant, since a mole is someone that infiltrates a tight circle, and an informant is someone from the inside turning. Morel asks Frederick for his opinion on the cake she's designing. And she does those type of cakes that are like items that don't look like cakes, but are cakes. So she has two books and uh, like two coffee cups. And Frederick says how she's getting so good at that. And Morel says how she wants uh, his dad to love it and how her cakes always put him in a good mood. So she's doing this for Roderick. Frederick is still shocked about how there's an informant in the family and how if there is someone who would turn on their family, it is Perry, the youngest, or Prospero, uh, his actual name. And Morel says how he's just a kid, but Frederick continues uh, uh, on, like, why why would becoming an informant to the government be in someone's best interest? Like, he doesn't understand that. Lenore chips in and says how the informant would have to be pretty brave, and she asks if the charges are true. If um, And she's like, if they aren't true, then there's nothing to worry about. But if someone did break the law, shouldn't they be punished? And Morel, her mom, comments how that is brave and thoughtful thing to say. And then under her breath, she says, especially if you want to get written off the will. <laughs> so Lenore checks the phone and then it cuts to Bill, Tammy's husband, saying, you don't think he would do that, would you? 
And Tammy responds that Freddie wants dad to love him more than anything and how he might be shit on business, but he wouldn't turn on dad. And she says how her money, how it, she's like, oh, my money is in one of the bastards. Bill, her husband, says how they've underestimated Frederick because if Roderick goes down, then he will be on in the throne so maybe him becoming an informant makes sense but tammy disagrees because even though he doesn't do anything he's still handed everything he wants uh she mentioned how his name frederick is as close to roderick as you get without a junior and she doesn't know why he just doesn't call himself froderick tammy thinks it could be perry again someone think putting their money on perry and bill brings up that it could be uh tammy's new stepmom juno but Tammy does not want to hear it. So she tells Bill not to mention Juno to her because she doesn't exist. And Bill asks if Juno's on the will because Roderick should be smarter than that. Or like, no, Roderick should be smarter than that. And Tammy reiterates that she does not exist and how she doesn't know anything. So Bill suggests pushing back the launch and Tammy says no way and how Goldbug needs to go off on time since she built the launch date into the presentation and how her dad has already signed off on it. Bill says how there's too much going on with the trial and the informant and with what the world thinks and Tammy doubles down and says how she does not care about what the world thinks. She only cares about what her dad thinks so they will write it out. Bill holds her and comforts her by saying that Goldbug will, sh Goldbug will show her dad that the Usher name is an empire ran by a matriarchy and how she should be the queen so he, she, so he will do whatever she asks. And she tells him that she just needs him to continue to be himself, Bill T. Wilson, and to just keep making his videos and to keep those 10 million subscribers frothy for her. And he mentions uh, that a, com a competitor has 12 million subscribers and Tammy's like, fuck them. Fuck this trial and fuck the informant. She's like, speaking of fucking, who knows how late this goes tonight, so I canceled the girl. Bill says how he didn't know there was a girl tonight, and Tammy tells him not to worry since she canceled already, and how her dad needs to see his kids don't need half a billion dollars and an endless supplies of test monkeys to be successful. So we cut to the third daughter, Victorine, and she's assisting her girlfriend on bus and business partner doing sur surgery on a gorilla. And they insert an item to the gorilla's heart. And then the girlfriend, Alessandra, says to close up the gorilla's chest. And Victorine is excited because it's actually beating on its own with what they inserted. So after the surgery, uh, the doctor girlfriend, Alessandra, or Al, tells Victorine how they're going to struggle to get peer review. And they and she mentioned something about it being due to the nightshade and how the new powder that Roderick sent over is going to poison the study. And she mentions how tourists in South America get powder blown in their face and it paralyzes them. And how the how the powder Roderick sent over is the same stuff and how their trial is never going to look legit if they're using tests for tonado substances and victorine jokes that they just need to keep it away from perry or it will end up in some co-ed's drink why is everyone hating on perry the first two kids think he's the inform informant and that uh fucking victorine is saying how he's gonna drug a co-ed's drink so Alessandra asks if Victorine really wants her to come tonight since it seems that everyone is going to have their guns out after the court uh, appearance and Victorine tells her how she needs to come and Alessandra reiterates that she thinks that it's going to be a bloodbath but Victorine tells her how she was told to bring her partner.
We then see Napoleon in his condo playing video games, and he's on the phone with his boyfriend, uh, saying how he absolutely he absolutely cannot come. And his boyfriend Julius tell him tells him how he wants to meet his family, and Napoleon lets him know that there's this is a whole process for being, uh, what did I say? Uh, that there's a whole process, uh. Because significant others in the family are a whole thing, and he how he does not want that yet because the prenup is a nightmare. So Julius asks, "So you asked me to move in, but you don't want me to meet your family?" And Napoleon is like, "That's right." And he tells Julius that he doesn't know when he will get back, and that they'll just talk about it later. And Julius tells him that he they could talk about it right now because he's coming up the elevator. Um, Napoleon starts to clap, like snap his fingers as he realizes that Julius is on his way up. And then we notice that a woman was giving him a blowjob as he played his video game and talked with his boyfriend on the phone. And he tells her that she needs to go. And she says, she's like, you promised me a selfie. And he tells her to go uh, to the balcony and hide under the the blanket in the sofa. She's going on about how her friends are never going to believe that she met Napoleon Usher, and he closes the door to the balcony right as Julius is coming inside. So Napoleon asks him why he's home so early, and he's like, not that I'm complaining. And Julius figured that shit hit the fan since he saw the news, and he just wanted to be there for him. And Napoleon kisses him as he turns his face away from the window slash balcony area. And Julius asks if he's sure that he can't go with him to the dinner dinner and napoleon says how it is not a good idea and julius starts talking about about what happened in the opening statement and he's like it was all over the news and then julius's cat pluto comes to rub on his leg and he picks him up as napoleon suggests that they should turn on the news in the tv on their bed and like in their bedroom and then like he's like trying to get him away so that the girl can sneak out of the condo so we are now uh, with Camille, and she's in her office, which has a huge screen with different versions of the news playing at the same time. It's very, like, white, like, the theme. It looks like, you know, when Kim, Kim Kardashian shared, like, pictures of her home, and it was just, like, all white. This is what her office looks like. <laughs> um, and she's talking to both of her assistants that are all, that are both dressed in the same clothing. Uh, and she tells one of uh, one of them to call Vanity Fair to see if they want a profile on Leo and how he can talk about his Jordans and his charity work. She mentions Kimmel, Colbert, and Leo, and also Victorine can work for Vanity and Cosmo. And she mentions how somehow people like Victorine. And the male assistant says how Juno, her stepmom, will be at the Met this weekend and how her, how her dad's office asked for some page six. Camille says... They scraped her off an an emergency room floor, and they think I can turn her into Princess Grace. And she also talks about how Roderick is old enough to be Juno's grandfather and how that will never not be gross. But she agrees and tells her assistants to give them what they want. She reminds them that the priority one is the informant and how they should start with Perry, another Perry hater. Uh, She's like, you should start with Perry, obviously, but how she just doesn't think he's clever enough to keep it off of TikTok. (laughs) They ask if she wants them at dinner and she says no because she wants them to stay on top of this informant thing because if they are real, she wants to find them. The female assistant says how it is tough to get victory in these days because she knows that Camille is watching. And Camille says how she knows, but they will figure it out um, because she needs to know who's talking with the feds and how then she's going to freeze their fucking head and give it to her father in a platinum plate. 
And then she asked them to check with Cartier if they can make a platinum plate. Again, rich people are insane. So and then we then see Roderick's wife, Juno, telling Roderick how she's so nervous and how she has never hosted anything before as like servants walk past them setting things up for the family dinner. She mentions how she moderated an, an A, Narcotics Anonymous meeting once and how it was a disaster and Roderick tells her how she will be great and how she won't have to do anything. She's spooked about the fact that they will all be there all at once and she mentions how she's glad that they didn't have a wedding because the way she... That way, she did not have to look them all in the eye. She says how they hate her, and Roderick disagrees. And then she adds, except Freddie, but I'm pretty sure he's just kissing your ass. <laughs> and Roderick responds that they will love her because he loves her and because the only thing stronger than love is how fucking scared they are of getting cut out of the will. We then see Roderick's doctor get there, Don, and Roderick introduces him to Juno and mentions how Don will take over her case when she's done with Dr. Lewis, her current doctor. And Don asks Roderick, um, he's like, oh, I was going to call, but the news uh, I have is important enough. And he's like, I need to talk to you alone. It then cuts to Don leaving as Perry is walking in and we see Roderick sitting down by himself looking concerned. Juno comes into the room and tells him that Prospero, a.k.a. Perry, is there and asks if he's ready for him. We then see Perry serving his dad and his Aunt Madeline a drink from uh, like a 1996 bottle. And he meant she's like, yes, it was the year that I was born. And he's pitching his idea for a business to them. The whiskey company will he's like the whiskey company will be the official whiskey of the club and they will open its library of alcohol to us. Madeline lets him know uh, he's like, you had a year to come up with a proposal for your first business business venture and you came up with a nightclub. And Perry stands by his idea and tells his aunt how she's not thinking big enough because not only is the club going to be amazing, but the franchise possibilities are where the big money will come from. Madeline wants to know what else make this nightclub world worthwhile and Perry tells his aunt that this club will not be a fucking Dave and Buster's and how he's talking about the most exclusive nightclub in the entire world and how he will turn away movie stars and monarchs uh, with attitude and how they're going to make Studio 54 look like a fucking child's cartoon. Madeline is not buying it because he's she's like you're just up marking expensive bottles of whiskey and Paris Perry lets her know that he's not selling alcohol. He's serving hedonism, privilege, and how it will be a dark room with killer music with few rules and fewer consequences. Consequences. He's like, it's where the movie star that everybody fucking worships is giving head to the real VIPs in the corner and how he wants to come to the office and show them the numbers and the franchise projections and how he was thinking of a tiered membership for Axis. And Madeline cuts him off and then and asks Roderick to please chime in. Roderick is like, tiered membership? Why didn't you fucking say so? And then he tells Perry that they will not set up a meeting with him at the office and how being an usher is about changing the fucking world and how it is not a blowjob at a whiskey bar. Lame. <laughs> so Perry asks them to look at the numbers and how he will come to the office on Monday. And Roderick is over it and he tells Perry how that's all. And Perry just walks away. Madeline and Roderick stay behind and uh, she tells her brother how she's sure he's not the informant, but how he does not. He, she, she's like, he does not have a, know a fucking thing about business. 
Madeline also mentions how she knows that it's important for Roderick that everyone gets their first loan, and Roderick agrees, and he's like, yeah, Perry's not making it easy. Madeline says to go says to go into the dining room and to watch all of their eyes when the paperwork is passed out and how she'll be able to tell. Madeline asks Roderick what is going on with him and how she knows something's going on, and he tells her how he's all good and, and how he'll be right behind her. So Madeline leaves and he stays and takes a sip of the whiskey and he's surprised over how good it actually is and he covers his eyes as if he's stressed and he's startled by someone putting down another glass in front of him and when he looks up it's a it's a woman so Carlo Gugino and she says for the road and then he jumps up and when he looks up again she's not there. At the dining room table, Morel is showing off her cake that does not look like cake. Uh, and it's actually, it looks like a book titled Pharmaceutical Law. And she jokes that there might be something in there that can help them. Roderick tells Arthur Pym that he has to dig into that book and find something for their defense. And then he grabs a knife and cuts it and mention how it's cake and they all clap. And he says how if her TV show had been about, have been about, uh her cakes she would have had 20 seasons so i guess morel had a tv show back in the day i don't know so she asks care to wash it down coffee and roderick is like no way and napoleon whispers over to camille bet it's cake and then we see him cut into the coffee and it's obviously cake and they all clap again <laughs> roderick then tells frederick that the only thing that he didn't fuck up in his life was marrying Maury because she's a genius. And Freddie says how they've got that in common because they're both lucky men. And Juno looks uncomfy by that comment and Tammy's like, for fuck's sake, Freddie. Madeline lets her niece and nephews know that the P Pim Reaper, as I will be referring to for the rest of the season, the lawyer, has some important paperwork for each of them. Camille jokes that paperwork from the Pim Reaper is always a blast, and Napoleon asks if that is also cake. <laughs> and Madeline clarifies that it is a robust non-disclosure agreement and how it is consequential. Camille reads aloud and says, for, for forfeiture of inheritance, waiving of civil suits, and Camille jokes that they should really get together more often and how it's a balm for her soul. Tammy says how consequences are only valid if you violate the agreement, so it seems to her that no one has anything to worry about unless they have something to worry about. And Madeline is like, exactly. And we appreciate this vote of confidentiality, loyalty, and silence. And she tells them all to sign it. And Bill jokes how it's been a while since he felt like a member of the family, and he asks Al, Victorine's partner, if she's gotten to sign an original PIM yet, and how it is a rite of passage, and he tells her to wait to see the prenup. Camille hears the word prenup, and she takes the opportunity to ask Juno how things are, and Juno says how things are going great under her breath. And Alessandra mentions how she won't sign it without her lawyer looking at it first. And then everyone looks at her like sternly and she's like, or not. Victorine takes the opportunity to talk about how if anyone was collecting or bartering family secrets, they all know who that could be. And Camille responds, aw, fuck you very much, Victorine. Fred says, Frederick or Fred says not to fight within the family and to have some dignity. And he asks if they want to watch him sign the NDA and how he would do it right then and there. And Tammy asks, how do you spell Froderick as she flips through the document? 
Madeline tells them to get their jokes out because it's not funny because Fortunato is the reason they all exist and can have all the things they ever wish for. She reminds them that the company is the family and how they're expected to defend it with their life and how if anyone comes after them, they will exhaust their arsenal after the threat is neutralized. Frederick wants to know the specifics of what neutralized means and Madeline lets him know that neutralized means death. And how she asked the Pym Reaper to make the document particularly nasty because she asked him to, but how that is not the thing. And when she finds out who has been talking to the government, there won't be enough of them left to sue. And how she will sue the remaining puddle of gore in their designer shoes. And she tells them that they will find out. Roderick finally speaks up and he says, $50 million to whoever solves it. To the lucky usher who finds out who's talking with the feds. No strings no taxes. Victorine is about to ask, did you just put a, but Roderick cuts in, cuts her off and assures her that he just put a bounty on that person, on the shit back, on the informant, and how they know who they are. And he reiterates, 50 million, sleep tight, and to the rest of you, happy hunting. So back in present day, He's finishing up his recollection of things to DuPont and he says how the family dinner was the last time he saw them all together. And for some of them, the last time he saw them alive. DuPont asks if he's saying, implying that their deaths were caused by the information, like the informant thing and, and asking and saying that he uh, like implying that he's responsible for it. And Roderick assures him that he's not blaming him at all because he knows who's responsible. DuPont asks, you know, who's responsible for which death? And Roderick says, all of them. DuPont tells him that the death of his children have been examined very thoroughly and how those deaths are all unrelated. And Roderick cuts him off and says how he's responsible. And more to the point, perhaps there's a woman, a woman he has to tell him about. And we see intercut scenes of this woman who is played by Carla Gugino in different clothes and like different costumes. Roderick asks DuPont, do you know my favorite holiday? And he responds, he replies to his own question, says how it's New Year's Eve because of resolutions, because people take that word for granted. Resolve means being unwavering, determined, a firm commitment to do something or not to do something. And most people go to their whole wasted, stupid lives without one minute of resolution, but not him and not his sister. So flashback to New Year's Eve, 1979, going into 1980, and we see a young adult, Madeline and Roderick, walk into a bar and sit at the bar, and they're dressed in, like, 1920s attire, as if they have just attended a costume party, and they're looking solemn. A bartender goes up to them, Carla Gugino, and she asks if they uh, went to a costume party, and she sure serves them a drink, and how she's guessing Madeline is Daisy Buchanan, Buchanan, Buchanan. No, I can't. Why can't I pronounce it? Daisy Bucana? Bucana. And uh, whatever. And he's Jay Gatsby. And Roderick makes a comment about how Gatsby did not drink and how he always stayed so sharp and sober and watched everyone else drink. The bartender is like, nothing for you then? But Madeline lets her know that they're both drinking tonight. Whiskey. Neat. The bartender asks why they didn't stay at the other party and watch the ball drop. And Madeline mentions how she needed a change of scenery and how they work up the street and how they have never seen this place before. And she asks if they've just opened and the bartender responds, sort of, and how it's sure get and how it's sure to get more crowded at midnight since they're a midnight business. 
She also says how it looks like they had a wild night already as she stares at Roderick's hands and how they're doing how they're ending 79 with the bank and she says how she will drink one with them even though she does not really do that with customers and she pours herself a drink and she shears to 1979 may it rest in peace they clink their glasses and take the drink a while later roderick whispers to madeline wow i can't believe you really did that and madeline tells him to keep his voice down Roderick asks what they do now, and Madeline says how they stay there and drink, but not too much, and if the cops aren't there by midnight, that is a good sign, and how they won't really know for a few days, and how the most important thing is for people to see them tonight, and how that place is good because it's crowded, but not too crowded. Madeline and Roderick start small talking about politics and how they're finally kicking Carter out of the White House, and Roderick asks if she thinks Reagan will run, and Madeline responds that, uh, if he does, he will win by a landslide and how it will be good for business. The bartender comes up and lets them know that no politics talk is allowed inside the bar since they're a classy establishment. And she asks them if they want another drink. And Madeline says how just another one and then they will be switching to beer to slow it down since the night is young and whiskey is pricey. The bartender tells them how the first two are on the house and she and, and she asks if they want to start a tap. Uh, buy now and pay later. And she introduces herself as Verna. So I will be calling her Verna for the rest of the episode. Uh, she asks if they're staying for the ball drop and he responds that he thinks so. And Verna says, that's good. You have an hour or so to think about your resolutions. And she asks if they know what a resolution is. And she, and she replies to her own question. And she says that it's a deal you make with the future and how the future is coming fast and how it's nearly there. And she asks, you already know your resolutions, don't you? Roderick is quick to respond, and he says how he does, and how they got this, him and Madeline got the same one, and how they're going to change the world. So back in present day, Dupont comments how the, that night was when everything changed for Fortunato, and how people still whisper about what could have uh, what could have possibly happened that night. And then we see Verna telling them how their lives will take a complete change from that day to night and how both Ma Madeline and Roderick feel it because they're standing outside of time and space. In present day, Roderick says how he buried three of his children that day and the other three the previous week. And Dupont says how he knows and how he's sorry. And Roderick says that there's a reason he's telling him this about his mother, his children, New Year's Eve's, and how he might be reluctant to accept it, believe it, but how he promises that every single piece is important, and how they buried his boy today, and that almost nobody came this time. Six coffin he has put on the dirt in less than two weeks. So back at the beginning of the episode, when Roderick is at the church funeral service, and he turns around to look at the back of the church, and he sees the woman with the raven mask, and she looks like Verna. His granddaughter, Lenore, asks what he saw, and he just responds, she's here. And when he turns around again, instead of seeing that woman, he sees all of his dead children standing there. And Lenore reaches out to hold his hand, and when she turns around, there's no one there. We see him come out of the church, and the paps are going crazy trying to get a picture. And Roderick goes down to his car, and when his driver opens the door and he's about to climb in, there's a scary-looking jester staring at him, and this startles Roderick, and his nose begins to bleed, and then he falls backwards. 
Madeline gets straight to business and she tells the Pym Reaper to call an ambulance, but to keep it keep it off dispatch and to not give any names and to take him to the hospital under a pseudonym and to only get that specific doctor. As Roderick is laying down on the ground, staring into the sky, there's a raven staring back down at him. And Roderick whispers to Madeline, It's time. It's time. End of episode all right fucked up fam let's get started with our segment beginning with that character fucked up yes they did so madeline and roderick's mom elisa thinking that god would save her when she was sick and refusing to seek any type of man-made health First of all, religion could really be a sickness. And I'm not saying all religions. I'm saying if you take it to extremities, like, it could literally end you. It could kill you. And we see that here. Eliza, she had so much faith. And she's even asking her children, like, she's like, where's your faith? I know, how did God save and help all those people? God didn't have medicine. God didn't have this man-made fucking medicine. Like, where the fuck is your faith? And I honestly think that's also a disease. (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not funny. Like, Eliza caused so much trauma to her children. And I feel like Roderick and Madeline are pretty old school. So they, they're they never going to accept that their mom caused them any type of trauma. But she did. These two teenagers, children, if I may say, like, at that, watch their mom suffer in pain and agony. And then she died. And then they were so terrified of what would happen if they called the police because then they would embalm her and that's not the godly way to die and be buried. So they had to bury their own mother out of a makeshift coffin that they had to build. Can we talk about the trauma? I should have added this to that shit's traumatizing, but (laughs) I... Eliza, sweetie, R.I.P. First of all, R.I.P. Can we also talk about the last thing she did on this earth was kill a powerful man? Iconic. We love what we stand. But Eliza instilled this fear in her children that... I don't know what the word is. Like, her belief of God just traumatize her children that's all i have to say on that matter that's all i have to say also fuck a full name william longfellow me and all my homies hate that fool that's why eliza had to take him with him she's like i wasn't able to be with you during my lifetime bae <laughs> she was like bae honey we're not done sweetie pie we're finally gonna be able to be together in the afterworld in the afterlife, we're gonna be in fucking separable. Honestly, I love that. Honestly, like I said, don't condone murder. But if you're a piece of shit, I don't know. I don't know. I might. I might change my beliefs a bit. 
Okay. So I know like Roderick waived his right to have his attorney, aka Arthur Pym, aka the Pym Reaper present when DuPont got to his house, like to his childhood home. But for all you normal folks out there, don't you ever get questioned by the police without an attorney present. It's your right. I don't care if you're innocent. I, look, I don't trust the police. They could twist your words. They could twist and turn your words. They could even get you to confess something you did not do. So make sure you get your representation, okay? Okie dokie. Okie fucking dokie. I also said I put that character fucked up saying no to a four million dollar I mean four million euro cognac I mean like I said rich people insane y'all need some I don't know like I would love to examine a rich people a rich person's brain to see what the fuck is going on in there because this is not normal four million euros for a bottle of cognac like I, I know I already talked about this but like, I'm just thinking what I would do with 4 million euros <laughs> and buying a fucking bottle of cognac, a bottle of Henry IV, would be the last thing on my fucking list. I can't. I, I can't. I can't. This next one. Napoleon. So Napoleon's nickname is Leo. Napoleon. Sweetie pie. Darling. Okay, the cheating bit, let's just put it to a side because we don't know. Well, we could address it later. Getting head as you're playing video games, as you're talking with your boyfriend on the phone, insane. In fucking sane. Bro. The fact that he was like snapping his fingers at the girl that was giving him head, like, bitch, like, get off my dick. Go fucking hide, bitch. We're going to find out a lot about the ushers. And let me just tell you something right now. Not a spoiler. We got some some freaks. We got some freaks. Some, some freaks. <laughs> some freaks in the mist. In the mist? What's the saying? There's a... In the mist? In the mix. <laughs> We got some freaks in the mix. Okay, that's that's the name of a good song. Freaks in the mix? Oh! Am I going to transition from being a playwright, poet, and podcaster into becoming a songwriter? A ghostwriter for Megan Thee Stallion? Freaks in the mix? Oh my god, okay. Yeah, they've got a lot of... Um, the uh, the usher children how can i put this nicely how can i put this kindly they've got some like issues with sex all of them different all of them very unique but nonetheless issues with sex or is it fidelity or is it no well i don't want to king shame i'm not gonna king shame they um strive away from the norm when it comes to sex. There we go. The, uh, I should be a politician. <laughs> Poet, podcaster, playwright, songwriter, and politician. Because I could 
reword my words to make it sound so nicely. Nobody's ever going to know I'm talking shit about them. Besides the point, irrelevant. So, yeah, dude, just don't do that. Like, why can't you just enjoy the head? Like, not even thinking about the cheating part. You got, you're getting head. Enjoy it. Why are you playing a video game? So disrespectful. Why are you talking to your boyfriend who doesn't know you're getting head and would probably be upset if he found out? Disrespectful. I mean, but if he hadn't been talking to him, then he wouldn't know that he was coming up and then he would have gotten caught. I'm not an enabler. I'm not trying to enable things. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. This one's for Roderick. Roderick, Roderick, Roderick. Like, I know you got, you know, what is the word when I'm, okay, I can't be a politician. I am not quick in my feet with words. Uh, When you're not expecting something, there's like a phrase, and then something happens, and then you're kind of shook by it. Okay, besides the point. So, obviously, he wasn't expecting DuPont to have an informant and, like, finding out about it during DuPont's opening statement when the trial first began. So, he's a little worried. He's a little worried that someone in the family has turned on him, has turned on the family, has turned on Fortunato Pharmaceuticals. So, I I get the anger. Because it's like you're being stabbed in the back by the people closest to you. But again, rich people are insane. How are you going to put a $5 million bounty on the heads of one of your kids? Obviously, they're going to tear themselves apart. Like, they already started like, oh, it's probably Perry. Perry's not smart enough. Oh, it's probably Frederick or a.k.a. Frederick. Because he he's a kisses. No, it's probably Victorine. No, it's probably Camille. Like, the only one that probably didn't come up is Napoleon. <laughs> he's too busy getting his dick sucked by some, like, dick writer uh, to be wanting to be the informant of the family. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Okay. So you know how I usually have, like, the segments like that shit's traumatizing that shit's heartwarming let me tell you something right from the start there's not a lot of heartwarming things in this show not a lot of heartwarming things okay shocking horrible things sad things yes heartwarming no so we're not gonna have a that shit's heartwarming segment but we are i did want to have like a little bit of that shit's traumatizing depending on the episode (sighs) picture this Imagine you have children, some with your ex-spouse, others with just randoms. And then you grow up and you have six children who you love, who you appreciate, who you admire, who you never close the door to. You've never closed the door to your children. And Roderick does mention it in this episode. He's like, my dad never welcomed us. And that was not going to be the same as him. So all my children, the door was wide open for them, regardless of how they got here. And regardless, like he, he, this man wasn't out here looking for his kids. No, he's fucking around, fucking here, fucking there, whipping out his dick there and here and there and here. And he has six children, okay? 
all very different, but nonetheless ushers. Roderick ushers kids, sons, daughters. Imagine outliving them all. Imagine having a funeral for your three youngest kids, and then the next week you have a funeral for your three oldest. Can we talk about the fucking trauma? What the fuck? Like, obviously, for a normal individual, this would, this would destroy them. How would you even function? How would you even get out of bed every day? Like, at that point, I'd be like, you know what? It's, it got lonely here. I'm a hop out of this world, too. Like, what? So just the, the thought of outliving all your children is so scary to me. It's so terrible. Why am I getting so emotional? Okay, I think I know why I'm getting emotional, even though I hadn't thought about it. But I guess like when my both of my great grandmas from my dad's side outlived like one of their children, like one of their kids. And just like the pain of like even of just losing one kid is unmeasurable. But losing all six of your kids? What the fuck, dude? What the fuck? Your whole fucking lineage. I can't. Like I can't even. I don't know. I don't know how to process. I do not know how to fucking process. Uh, and I don't know who, how Roderick is speaking and breathing, you know? All right. And another thing that's traumatizing, seeing things that aren't there. <laughs> so we, we notice or we, we get to find out that Roderick first sees that woman with the raven mask sees Verna at his house serving him like another drink, sees all of his dead children in the church, and then he sees a jester, a fucking creepy-ass fucking just jester, just waiting for him. Like, you know what was even creepier? The just jester did like the like when, when dogs hear like a squeaky sound and they tilt their head, he was looking at Roderick with like a head tilt. It was so fucking terrifying. There were, okay, I do want to do say, let you know because some people like to know there are a couple jump scares. Not that many, maybe like one or two per episode. The first six episodes, I think. <laughs> I think that's like the whole series. <laughs> the whole, yeah, the whole show. Um, just putting that out there. I do want to say, because, you know, moving on from that shit's traumatizing in our segments, I do want to take a little time to focus because we all know Mike Flanagan likes using an ensemble of characters. Like, that's his thing. That's his fucking thing. He likes reusing the same characters. And I fucking love him for that. I fucking adore him for that but let me just let's just go over some of the characters so roderick usher he came out in uh gerald gerald gerald's game that's the that's the name of the movie i couldn't remember at the beginning 
so Carla Gugino also comes out on that. She's like the main uh, like character. And so is Roderick Usher, but he dies pretty early on in Gerald's game. He's the guy that wants to like, he's like, oh, let's get a little freaky. And then he like handcuffs his wife to the bed and then he has a heart attack. Not fun. And she's in an isolated cabin. Not fun at all. Not the type of foreplay I want to get into. Imagine. No, don't imagine that. Don't fucking imagine um, Napoleon is Raul Coley from Bly Manor. So his character in Bly Manor was Owen. We love Owen. Ah, protect Owen at all fucking costs. And in Midnight Mass, he was a sheriff. So love him for that. So he's Napoleon. And I mean, we all know who Kate Siegel is. She's she's playing Camille Lespawn or whatever the fuck her name is. Um, and she plays Theo in the Haunting of Hill House. She plays uh, the lady that walks in Blind Manor. So Viola Willoughby. And in fucking Midnight Mash, she plays... What the fuck? Let me look it up real quick. Oh, yeah, she plays Aaron. Yes, she does. And we have Tammy, fucking Tamerlane Usher. She plays Beverly motherfucking Keen, dude. Fuck a beach. A, a, beach. <laughs> a bitch named Bev Keen. Um, and she also comes out, and I believe she comes out. Where the fuck does she come out into? Did she come out in Midnight Mass? Yeah. No, well, obviously, Beth Keen in Midnight Mass. She is the wife of Stephen, the estranged wife of Stephen in Hill House. So what else? Who else? Fucking Eliza, Roderick, and Madeline's mom. Is played by Sarah from Midnight Mass. She's a doctor that kind of like discovers things along with Aaron after she tests Aaron's blood after she miscarries. Mm, what else? Oh, well, fucking young Roderick is played by Riley from Midnight Mass. The full, the main character who comes back after he serves his prison stint. So, yeah, I'm trying to think. Who am I missing? So, let me pull it up. Let me pull it up. I, honestly, I don't think I've seen Madeline in any of his things. Do you fucking know who Arthur fucking Pym, a.k.a. the Pym Reaper is? Do you know? I'll tell you. I'll fucking tell you. So... The Pym Reaper is played by Mark Hamill. The Mark Hamill. Luke motherfucking Skywalker. Can you fucking believe that? Okay, so I have covered Kate Siegel, Carla Gugino. So Juno 
which is fucking Roderick's child bride, she's played by a, a character that came out in The Midnight Club. If you haven't watched it, another one of Roderick's projects. Um, let's see. Henry Thomas, the dad from Hill House and the uncle from Bly Manor, plays Frederick Usher, the kiss-ass son. Annabelle, so Roderick's wife in the flashbacks, she plays uh the 19... What the fuck was her name, dude? Ah! Uh, she is like the 1920s ghost in Hill House. Pippa? Pip, no, what the fuck is her name? Oh my god, I'm looking at... I'm looking at... Uh, I can't... I can't find her. I can't find her name. I don't know why I'm talking in an accent. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, sweetie. Okay, I couldn't find her. But she she's a ghost in Hill House. And I forgot to mention... What am I missing, dude? Let's see. Henry Thomas. Prospero comes out also in Midnight Club. So Victorine is played by fucking Hannah Gross from The Haunting of Bly Manor. Again, protect Hannah at all costs. We've got Robert uh, fucking, oh, I think, isn't his name William Longstreet? Well, whatever. The, oh, no. <laughs> I'm, conf- I'm confusing their names with their actual names. Longfellow is played by Mr. Dudley. I love Mr. Dudley. Protect him at all costs. And then, so I don't think, we haven't met him yet. And I think that's it for like recurring characters. Oh, Bill T. Wilson, who is Tammy's husband in The Fall of the House of Usher, came out in Midnight Mass, and he was Sturge. He was, like, the guy that, like, is there when Father Paul dies and comes back to life. He's, like, the handyman. Okay, I've gone on for way too long, and you're probably bored of me just going over names, but I just wanted to share that because I love that he uses an ensemble. He keeps giving these people jobs. And I'm here for it. I'm a stan. I'm a fucking stan. But, all right. We have gone into the end of this episode. The first episode of season 12. We've gotten here. We're here. We're ready to go. And we're ready to fucking party. Just like Roderick Usher's kids. As if it was our last day on earth. <laughs> All right, y'all. So you already know the drill. Follow the podcast on social media on Instagram where that show effed me up. And on Twitter where that D-A-T show fucked me up. Fucked is spelled without the U. Uh, Give the podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. It helps with visibility. It helps more people find the podcast. Join the fucked up fam. Become part of the shared psychosis that we all enjoy oh so very much. So, yeah, just help the algorithm a little bit. Just give it a little nudge. And by nudge, give me five fucking stars. All right, fucked up fam? (laughs) 
Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for experiencing this beautiful, beautiful show with me. I love you. I appreciate y'all so much. And remember, be gentle, be kind, and don't be an asshole unless you absolutely have to be. Goodbye. Thank you.